Hey everyone, my name's Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of... Oh, I screwed it up. Let me do it again. <laughs> That's like okay. the first time I've ever screwed that up. Okay. Hey everyone, my name's Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another special episode of Make Ours Marvel, we like to call Not Comics. This is our 17th Not Comics special, where we, we sit back and instead of reading books for a living... Well, I say living. We don't make any money off of this. But we watch movies instead. And we have been making our way through the X-Men franchise of films because we love those merry Marvel mutants so much. And this time we're talking about X-Men First Class. And back with us, as she has been almost every month for a while now, <laughs> hopefully she can stand our, you know... Our, our, our presence a little bit longer. We have Sarah Century from Sci-Fi Fangirls. Welcome back to the show, Sarah. Hey, Thanks Sarah. for having me. What's up? We are excited to talk about X-Men. Yeah, I love talking about X-Men. It's my favorite. It's been like a decade now since this franchise started. But yeah. When you just like watch them, bam, 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 it's like no time passes whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was wondering. So, how mo- how much time has passed between the last movie we talked about, which was Wolverine? And I think this two one? years, right? Because that yeah, was right 2009. Okay. July-ish, I think 2009. And here we are, end of May. End of May is like a blockbuster era of movies to come out. I think like end of May is always like a really big time. Summer yeah. blockbuster, yeah. So it's 2011 now. Um, I want to go first on the where were you because. You know, 2009-2010 was a big shift in me in my identity as a fan of comics and of comics uh, media because a lot of the podcasting circles that I now frequent and, you know, live in, I found those between Wolverine and now. So this was the first film that I walked out and I, like, called a lot of the friends that I currently have in those online circles. So this was this is sort of a, a different identity for me as a comics fan watching this film. And it's pretty neat to remember, you know, calling Michael Bailey and saying, hey, yes, it, you know, forget about The Last Stand. Forget about Wolverine. We have another <laughs> X-Men movie again. It's great. You should go see it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see it. What do you what do y'all remember? Well, well, Sarah, you didn't see it. <laughs> Mine was literally right before we started recording this podcast. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, it was a Friday the 13th in 2019. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the full moon I was out. I remember it as if it were yesterday. Um, <laughs> or but even it today. Was, <laughs> or even today. Yeah. Um, it was basically just... Maybe I had like a five minute gap before I started talking to you on Skype. Basically, I was cutting it really close with this one. Awesome. Awesome. We will not fault <laughs> you. That happens. Um, secret. I have not finished the third comic that we're supposed to talk about after we record this episode. <laughs> um, Read it, Paul. I'll be, while. Read I'll it be while eating a slice of pizza and finishing that comic before Michael and I keep recording. The sad thing is, is we're supposed to read six. So. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I moved apartments. <laughs> I know. I've been unpacking all week. <laughs> I managed to get some episodes edited, though. So, Mike, what do you remember about 2011? Um, I remember it was an exciting new direction because I think we were all getting a little, especially after Last Stand, kind of getting a little stale on the Wolverine and his boys stuff. Um, <laughs> and this didn't even have Wolverine in it. I mean, it does, but not really. So that was cool. I know I saw it in the theater. I don't really have any memory of that. That's kind of my story with all these X-Men movies, I feel like. But uh, I remember really liking it. 
and um, um, particularly, particularly, however you say that word, um, young Mag- Magneto and his uh, journey through revenge and all that stuff. Man, that stuff was so good. And watching it again for this show, that was still probably my favorite bits. There's a lot of stuff I like less, but that stuff, all that Michael Fassbender stuff was really working for me still. They should have just made like 28 Mag- young Magneto movies or something. <laughs> I'd be yep. down for that. <laughs> and it's worth mentioning, we mentioned this last time, but this was the concept that became this film was originally going to be another X-Men Origins film about about right. Magneto, about his early right. days. And there was a script written, there was a treatment done. Uh, eventually they decided to go in a different direction. And so they just took some of the elements and ideas from that and incorporated them into a whole different story. Um That idea he, is exciting though. Like I really kind of wish we could see it somehow. You know what that would have been? I would have liked to see that. Well, it helps explain why so much of Fassbender's perspective is the is the focus of this film. Yeah, really, this this movie goes from being about Xavier, Magneto, and Wolverine to being about Xavier, Magneto, and Mystique. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I guess we can kind of start with those three. Um, We've talked about Magneto, and we've talked about his. You know, his background having been a Holocaust survivor in the in the films and in the franchise in previous movie uh, episodes of the podcast, um, both how that's, you know, iconic, but also maybe a little problematic because that's like the only only Jewish story that seems to get used in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but, it's, um, it's interesting because that definitely puts a date on this movie. And I know they're trying to make it a period piece with the whole sixties and stuff anyway. But like, you know, this was 2011. So what, 20, 30 years from now, can we really do a Magneto was in concentration camp story (laughs) or actually even now the MCU, they're going to start introducing the X-Men. Can they do the concentration camp thing anymore? Or are they going to have to come up with something different or figure out why he doesn't age or what? So I was kind of, it was kind of interesting that they kept it, but at the same time, that's how they established it in the first X-Men. So it sort of connects. Mm -hmm. Well, you see Mike, there was, was this literally time the when Magneto was de-aged to a baby. <laughs> well, yes. Right. So I guess they could do they could do some comic-y gimmick like that, I suppose. But uh-huh. And Moira had to take care of him because Moira is like the babysitter of the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> the unpaid babysitter. And that's um, how her ninth life ended. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, I think that the Nazi killing is always fun to watch uh-huh. <laughs> on a it's movie. It's a good motivation. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. You can never really go wrong with that one because uh-huh. nobody is going to fault you except for nope. <laughs> apparently Charles Xavier will. But, um, <laughs> you know, maybe he's being a little judgy towards Eric. But, uh, yeah, the thing with Magneto kind of at least had a little bit more fleshed out. Unfortunately, his mom just like dies really brutally in like the first couple minutes uh, of the movie, which was yeah pretty rough. Uh, but it's a horrible also, scene. Yeah, yeah, it's awful. It's awful. so awful, and it's hard to view. I'm like, oh, Kevin Bacon. I didn't know you were like that. Like, oh, he's so good in this. <laughs> he's yeah. really mean. Yeah. Oh yeah, but great. I, I was pretty impressed by how mean he is in this. I hadn't seen it's, him be mean since like Hollow Man or something. Oh, so yeah. sociopathic. He just switches back and forth between, okay, move the coin or I kill your mother. And, oh my gosh, look at all the cool things you're doing. You're a mutant. It's yeah. just like he, he, it turns back and forth so quickly and easily. And his like 40s German hair is like doing weird stuff. It's, it's, it's crazy. 
Yeah, not to turn it too much to Shaw uh, this early in the game, I guess, but I was baffled by his presence. But I feel like if I look at Kevin Bacon as not, I mean, because nobody really likes Sebastian Shaw anyway. So it's like for them to be like, yeah, probably he was a Nazi. You're like, well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, why not, right? Terrible capitalist, you know, in his first appearances anyway, and a misogynist and just a really bad person who emphasized torture on other people. So I can see it. Um, yeah, we're going to have to talk about the Hellfire Club before this conversation's over. Yeah, I think so, too, because as much as I really appreciated uh, just how mean Kevin Bacon was, I had different emotions about the Emma Frost here. But we, <laughs> I knew <laughs> we you were going to say that. Back it up yeah. <laughs> and go back. Uh, but yeah, was there anything else to Magneto's story that you thought was really interesting in this one? Well, I like, oh, go ahead. Well, just one thing I was going to say is that um, I'll, I don't think they reshot i think they just took footage from the original x-men film and used it in this um right but it, yeah not but sure. it, it flowed seamlessly into yeah. the new stuff yeah mm-hmm. i wasn't sure if they reshot it just shot for shot with the new actor or if it's the same kid or what how could it be the same kid it's so long later you know it's 10, right. it's 10 years of, of production later yeah, so it has to be a different kid, right? Because that wouldn't—he'd be like in his teens or something. I don't know. So but yeah, it looked the same. They did, a, or what? they did a good job of melding it together, regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, I go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I just the thing about Magneto, as in a lot of characters who are old, you know, from the '60s and have had a lot of writers and stuff. Like my sweet spot for him is when he's as good as you can be and just have a point of view about you know the whole killing all humans part, but otherwise is like you know, supportive of his mutants and the mutant cause and all that stuff. Now, when he first started in the sixties, he's just, you know, batshit crazy and like the worst villain ever and does all the wrong choices. But at some (laughs) point, at some point he becomes like more human and more like, okay, I can almost even see his point of view sometimes. Yeah. Um, um, so this Magneto is like that, I think, which is what I like about him. He's even more like that than, Ian McKellen's Magneto, who sacrifices mutants and is mean to mutants when he doesn't get what he wants, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Like this guy, this guy seems more like a legit hero with a chip on his shoulder for humans and Nazis and mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon's. So it's like I really <laughs> liked, I really liked this version of Magneto because he's almost a hero. Yeah, I thought so, he was way more complex than we've seen uh-huh. so far, and also had a a deeper. I mean, they still do the thing every time where they're like, but Magneto can't be right because he causes harm to all of these people. You know, he hurts Xavier in this. But it's also just, you know, I think that here he was a lot more sympathetic than kind of the cartoonish aspects of the McKellen portrayal, which I enjoy. Mm -hmm. But I thought that this was really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because McKellen's plots and plans... (laughs) <laughs> plots and plans were always um they were cartoonish they were over the top they were twirl your mustache if you had one supervillainy um and this feels more like a person on a mission mm-hmm. um mckellen it, would also sacrifice another mutant to get what he wants you know whereas this mm-hmm. guy seems like he's trying to support and push especially the freaks like you're not a freak you should be who you are you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Like he's actually being a mentor in the same way Charles is only at the end, you know, he decides to go a different route, but totally. Um, okay. So let's move over to James McAvoy as young, groovy, uh, <laughs> Charles Xavier. Yuck. You don't Any, like him? Anytime, uh, 
that like Professor X is like supposed to be super like swinging bachelor dude. I'm always like put off by that. And also <laughs> I thought um as much I do think that McAvoy can be really good in this role. I love his chemistry with Fastbinder. Like those two are boyfriends, but uh for at oh, least yeah. a couple of scenes through this movie. Um and they, they they rely so heavily on each other there for a little while that you're just Wow, you two have a have a lot of chemistry, definitely. Um, more so than anybody else in this movie has with any other character. So it really stands out. Um, but that kind of young, brash Charles Xavier, I always uh-huh. am kind of... I get why they have to do it, because they're trying to show his evolution. But also, it's always the things that we don't like that much about this guy. So We finished the movie... And one of my daughter Lily's remarks was, okay, they, it wasn't even subtext. <laughs> they were just boyfriends. That like, scene where they go in to see Angel and they're both sitting all close to each other. That was uh-huh. just like, wow. When they're lounging on the steps or the hillside or something. And, yep. and Xavier's like leaning back towards um, Magneto. It's just like, just kiss him. Just, just, just kiss. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you guys watched the Graham Norton show ever, but they they were on it. Yeah, during, I did during around that. this time, and of course, he always likes to bring in fans and stuff. And a bunch of fans drew pictures of them in stories. <laughs> and so, one, they laughed about that, but then two, they reenacted one of them on a bike, like in in the wind, uh, holding each other. <laughs> so, if you think it's oh, funny, yeah. check it out on YouTube. It's on there. I want to go yeah, find yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. There was also one, was it, it. I think it might have been on Graham Norton as well, where they had Hugh Jackman, Ian McKellen, and Patrick Stewart all come on, and that one oh, was yeah. pretty oh, great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very funny. <laughs> very, very flirty, those three. Yeah, geez. I'm like, Patrick Stewart's been dealing with flirty Ian McKellen for, like, the last, like, 40 oh, years yeah. of his life. <laughs> and then Ian loves Hugh Jackman, because, you know, he's Muscles. Hugh Jackman, so, Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, okay. So you know how sometimes you like an actor and it's just chemistry and you like whatever they're in and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Well, the flip side of that unfairly maybe is that sometimes there's actors that you find super annoying and I kind of just find (laughs) James McAvoy, like one of those guys you want to punch in the face every time you see him. I don't know why. (laughs) And and, And particularly in this, of course, because, you know, like you said, Sarah, they're trying to show his evolution and how he started out as kind of juvenile and stuff. So it's like, oh my God, this all this opening business with the bar and hitting on girls and stuff. It's just like, oh, I wanted to choke him so bad, you know? It's such a that, groovy mutation. <laughs> groovy mutation. That, yeah. Oh, my God. That was the part where Raven is actually the most relatable because she is way over it. Uh, yeah. I think that I really struggled with Raven through this and was kind of just uh, all uh, over the place. Really? But, oh, yeah. God, yes. Raven is the saddest part about this movie. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm going to call a tie between <laughs> Raven and Emma Frost, but oh, I thought wow. that it was pretty rough for uh, for Mystique in this because so much of it, once again, like it, it's her motivations are so surface level. She just changes randomly. Like she's, oh, I just wish I could be normal. And you never hear that from Mystique at all in the comics or even in the other movies or anything like that. Again, they're trying to do that well, things were like this, and now they're like this, and people change, and all of that. But it's this doesn't really fit the character sometimes, because they always have a character who just wants to be normal in every one of these X-Men stories. And I'm confused why they t- made it be Beast and Mystique, who kind of classically are the two characters that are the most comfortable <laughs> with their mutations. Beast 
mutations are his own fault. <laughs> he does it again and again to himself. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. And the whole sister thing I thought was weird because, you know, as I was watching this, this was all news to me. I really just, you know, media blackout this whole movie franchise after <laughs> the last one. So uh, this it all came as kind of a surprise to me to see, I guess, uh, the sister thing. And I thought, well, maybe that could have worked, but then it's not given even remotely the same depth as the relationship between Eric and Charles, right? So I'm just like, why did you have to interject that if it doesn't really go anywhere, I guess? Um, I guess it's, it gives them an, an excuse to have Xavier and Mystique know each other, but <clears> then you're right, ugh. they don't really do a whole lot with it except his awkward conversation later where he can't look at her while she's blue and he's like I, I, I don't think of you that way because you're my sister when really he's just saying I don't think of you that way because you're blue yeah you see a lot of his intolerance and a lot of his self-loathing and that just doesn't exist in Magneto so it's well, interesting that's one of my least favorite things about prequels is when they do like the oh by the way did you know these two people were related and then you go oh but that does what make huh that doesn't make any sense I think that would have come up yeah <laughs> and it's like don't you think that would have come up and then you go well but they never actually met so why would they why would he bring it up and you go oh you got me again but at the same yeah. time it's <laughs> yeah. silly and stupid it's yeah. like at some point at some point Patrick Stewart would have said oh by the way that crazy shapeshifter I grew up with her she's my sister and weird be careful you know yeah. like they don't say anything and on top of that I'm going to I'm going to say that this is the most disappointing of the two because, yeah, Emma Frost is sad, but mm. we had three awesome mystiques right, yeah. prior to this movie that we all loved. Like, that was our favorite part of all three movies almost was this mm -hmm. Rebecca Romaine Stamos portrayal of Mystique. Even though she had few lines, all the lines were spot on awesome. Her performance was awesome. Her action was awesome. And then we kind of get this weeny whiny Jennifer Lawrence yeah like i don't know she just seems so normal and boring i didn't really it's just a real downgrade i think yeah and her flirtation with beast was just like good god get eh. me out of here i don't want to watch this <laughs> it's fine but it's also just not mystique yeah. you know that was kind of yeah. like the whole thing and you can divorce these characters from their comic book selves like i do that all of the time whenever i'm watching these movies but with mystique it was really hard because they took away all of the fundamental things that they had even established within the franchise. So right. it was like, well, I'm trying to divorce these concepts from each other and enjoy this as is, you know, enjoy this J law version of mystique, but there's <laughs> right. not, but, there's not yeah. really anything to hang on to with her. Uh, Didn't she, she make a comment about how like one of her first she, she said she, we've talked about how she had like like seven lines in the whole three films. <laughs> yeah, but they were always like really crucial lines. Didn't she say something about like one of her early relationships being like a traumatic experience for her or something? Yeah, or am I confusing that up? I think well, she she said something like you know you know you all treat me like crap or something like that when she beat up the senator. I remember that, but I don't know if she's talked about a relationship. Did she? Hmm. Maybe not. I I think it's always been pretty ambiguous with Mystique what her relationships were until, well, I mean, that's true to the comics, too. But Wait, can um, you just can you see this Jennifer Lawrence Mystique growing up into Rebecca Romaine no. Stamos Mystique? It just doesn't even connect to me. Like, it no. just seems like a totally they, different person. They try to move her in that direction through the course of Days of Future Past. Right. I think by Apocalypse, it becomes a, a little bit harder, maybe if I'm remembering right. And of course, there's her fate in Dark Phoenix that's completely incompatible 
Um, and also we have the question of, is this really the early days of that X-Men timeline? It can't be. It can't be, right? It's impossible, yeah. So... It's like so this is, this, time this is like the up. first movie where we just decide like the comic books eh, and throw it all out the window. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. before that it was pretty connected. Mm-hmm. And now, now it seems just like, no, that doesn't really gel with what happened in the last movie. Does it? Right. And it's also like the things that we thought were the worst about Mystique in the last ones where she is, her whole uh, character is just defined by basically Magneto here it's defined by a variety of different men, but her whole character arc is just in response to the men around her, mm-hmm. which is always boring, you know, even if it's not offensive, which like, you know, depending on what day it is, I find it pretty fin- offensive. <laughs> but um, I, I just think that even if you completely aren't offended by that at all, you would still be annoyed because it's super boring. So. <laughs> And also just a little creep when Fastbender made out with her because I feel like the age gap was he cra- t- was he crazy. Be- up yeah, too. he says, "Get out of here! You're too young." Maybe in a couple years I'll bone you, but yeah. then like, but, but then he then gets he makes out with her. her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was really messed up. I didn't like that at all, and I was just like, "Well, you guys are taking these two very queer characters <laughs> and just trying to." make them be heterosexual essentially like you're putting magneto who we just saw have off the charts chemistry with charles xavier and then Magne- or, um, mystique who as you know we know from the comics has had a really long history of being pretty much straight washed so just taking those two characters and being like yeah now they're gonna kiss is very uh disappointing i guess not necessarily the worst thing that could happen but it was definitely just you know i guess i roll they're just trying to hint at the future with, you know, how they are together, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I but, like them as gay best friends later. Like, that, to me, was an actual... I mean, that's the thing. We never we never saw the McKellen-Romaine version, like, actually do anything that I can remember. So they it just, just kind of maybe, maybe hinted at that they were a couple, but... They just be mean to everybody else and kind of figure at everybody. Yeah. To me, that's, like... You know, they, classic yeah. gay best friends, but yeah, yeah, gay best friends are like like buddy cops, but the evil version. They they were just they were having fun going out and being evil together. The mm-hmm. only hint of anything even approaching romance is whenever he says, "You were so beautiful," but right. that could be completely platonic. You know, it's just yeah, the only thing even remotely resembling it. That was just an irony sentence because you're telling a supermodel that she's not beautiful anymore <laughs> because she's not blue. Blue anymore. Yeah. Right. Which which that sentiment does get echoed here, and mm-hmm. in part, it's interesting because this is this is nineteen sixty two, so of course civil rights and of course you know racial dynamics, and we're talking about mutant and proud, and we're talking about passing versus not mm-hmm. passing, yep. and so it's sort of like taking the metaphor and like shaking it in front of your face and saying, hey, guess what we're doing. Uh, and yet, for some reason, it also still kind of works. Like, that's not an offensive part of the film. It still kind of works. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the passing privilege commentary in all of the X-Men movies is fairly interesting. I, and that's definitely something that if I were nine or ten years old as a queer person, I would have my mind blown. And I certainly did as a kid, whenever I was reading X-Men comics, that was a big thing of seeing these different characters, some of which can pass and some of which can't, uh, that it's very resonant, you know, for a lot of queer people. But 
at the same time, <laughs> I just wish that whenever they do stuff like that, it didn't have to come at the cost of character growth because I don't think that Mystique ever in any incarnation that I have ever witnessed other than this movie has been uh, remorseful about her mutation, I guess. Um, have the comics done young Mystique storylines and like explored her backstory and stuff? No, because if they did, they'd have to show her hook up with Destiny all of the time. Right, <laughs> but they right. did they did like the basic stuff where uh, you know, Nightcrawler had like a bad mom and guess what? It was Mystique, you know, or they do uh here's her and Wolverine making out seventy five years ago or something silly. Uh but yeah, so they've they've given her a heterosexual timeline, but they never have really followed up with it, unfortunately. Uh, I am here for that. I would read that. I would read the early adventures of Mystique and Destiny before they are totally who they later become mm-hmm. every day. <laughs> that is the best. I, I figure there's got to be some sort of emotional coping mechanism in place where this young person realizes that she's different and has to come to grips with that. And I don't know I, if it's like, I was always blue because I'm Nightcrawler or... Mm-hmm. I think I, I, that with uh, with Mystique and part of the reason that it's a little bit resonant, I think, for me to read Mystique stories is that there might be that acknowledgement, but it kind of manifests in anger for her instead of being uh, self-conscious, I guess. So you see her definitely lie, definitely attempt to conform to what people think that she should look like and definitely use her powers to her advantage. But uh, I never have really seen her be anything but uh, just kind of contentious to humanity for for trying to make her be something that she's not. Which is why it's extra ironic that <laughs> she uh, has been, you know, one of the longest standing queer closeted characters. And sadly still so closeted because like you well, said, they've done so much heterosexual stuff for her. They did just recently finally show a kiss between Destiny and Mystique on panel after 40 years of subtext. So maybe someday we'll get that backstory. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> I'm still here for, I'm still here for, um, was it on this podcast that we talked about it or was it somewhere else where Destiny and Mystique were Nightcrawler's parents and Mystique is actually Nightcrawler's dad? It's such a better story. Just let it happen. Just let it happen. No, but we have Nightcrawler's dad in this movie. <laughs> Zazel or whatever Zazel. his name is. Yeah, isn't Chuck, he? Has, isn't he? Can, yeah, he's dad? in this. Can you believe it? They brought in Chuck Austin stuff. Can you believe it? I was stunned. I laughed so hard. I because I was at first I was like, who is this guy? And then I'm like, I know who this guy is. Yeah. Well, he he sure doesn't do anything other than physical stuff. Like no. we don't know anything about him. Same with Riptide. Yeah. Same with Riptide. They're both just cool looking and do cool stuff, but there's no character really other than they're bad guys. Right. Like, I always thought Riptide yeah. was a water word, and here he's making tornadoes. So I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> well, he made tornadoes in the water one time, so that could be how it works. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Extreme tornadoes. Um, but he does create the wind thing in the comics too, right? So that's not wrong, I guess. No, it's, it's not wrong. It's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> so a, a, before we move on from Mystique, a couple things. Because um, I remember in 2011 really, really liking 
the portrayal and the ideas of Mystique with Jennifer Lawrence here. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's one of those things where you have to separate your mind from everything that Mystique is in the comics. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and maybe you can make the argument that this Mystique and the Mystique we've had before are kind of contrasting, but I think that's also kind of um, one of the intents in the production based on some of the stuff I've read. But mm-hmm. This was one of Jennifer Lawrence's major breakout roles. It wasn't her first film by any stretch, but um, I think doing this is what got her the role in The Hunger Games, mm-hmm. where you know she became so many preteen girls' iconic hero, um, probably deservedly so. Um, but she does stand out in this as I don't know as what though, because like you said, so much of it is surface level, but it still seems to be a standout performance. I don't know; it's memorable to me at least. I don't know. Sure, they try to make her be a pivotal character, but uh, there's just no depth, unfortunately. So it's you get these as as I was saying before, those surface value decisions with her. Um, the depth ends up being more color by numbers than actual complexity. Yeah, unfortunately, it's just, her responses to people are interesting. You know, like they do give her that, but well, she's only she, responding. She, she, she has this chameleon power, and then she spends her personality being a chameleon for whichever boy she's currently trying to impress. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she bounces from Xavier to Beast to Magneto. So, like, who is she, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, she's the girl who made the great decision to not take Henry McCoy's syringe. That's because good. that ended up <laughs> yeah. not going well. But that's because was... she was trying to impress Magneto at that point. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, why would you take a syringe from Henry McCoy under any circumstances? That guy has such a track record <laughs> that <laughs> you would never, ever, ever even think about it, you know? it's No, absolutely not, Hank. Thanks. You keep that for yourself. You have so, undergone massive mutations. <laughs> I'm not dealing with this. So while we're on Hank, what do we think of him? He's one of I, the times where they got a character pretty right. I thought yeah. they, they actually... Uh, I don't know. I didn't really like him that much, but it was also another one of those things where sure he got some of the traits, you know, he has that nerdiness, that kind of, um, you know, that bonkers mad scientist aspect to him, (laughs) his physical, you know, not being able to fully pass was interesting because he can sort of pass, but he can't fully pass. That was Mm -hmm. to me kind of fascinating. Um, but the biggest thing that I think this whole franchise has missed with Beast is that you really don't see a lot of his suave interactions with people or his good jokes. Uh, his kind of sense of humor and playfulness has just been right. completely wiped out of this character in any. So it's it to me it correlates with the X Men Last Stand. Kelsey Beast. Grammer. Yes, it correlated with that really well, and I gotta say that like you know they're. They're not bad takes on the character, but the reason that I like Hank McCoy so much is always just that kind of madcap aspect to him, which is completely gone from this character. Right. He's not fun enough and his words aren't big enough. Yeah. I love the big words. So both of those things just seem to be missing. And I I guess they were missing in Kelsey Grammer too, but I didn't notice it as much. And I don't know why, maybe because he was on good behavior, being a political consultant in that movie. Uh Um, But even like the fight in the end, he got in some good jokes and was flipping around and stuff. So I thought like once he loosened up, it was good. Whereas this guy never really loosens up. And also his uh, blue look was super cheeseball to me. I don't know who was in charge of that, but it just looked like a really fake digital werewolfy painting put on his face or something. 
It it's was, also squeezed into that suit. So yes, that right. looks awkward for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he immediately in the comic, once he goes blue, it's always in boxer briefs after that. You never see right. him really wearing any clothes. Uh, <laughs> but also, yeah, just the whole thing to me, it was like, how does Beauty and the Beast from the 80s that like that <laughs> look way better than this? You know, like we're right. in this level of CGI where it's just making things look so, so bad that like the 80s looked better. <laughs> You said Beauty and the Beast from the 80s. I went to the Dazzler Beast miniseries. Yes. Beauty and the Beast. That's where my brain went. So I had to figure out what you meant for a second. (laughs) Yeah. I'm thinking like the Linda Hamilton. Right. right. Living under the sewer one. Yeah. Right. Because they really just gave that guy some makeup and were. Lion face. That's all he had. Yeah. Yeah, good old lion face. Uh, I think that this one didn't work too good. And you could see the real stiffness of his mouth, you know, and all of that. So it was it was a little rough. I don't think that one aged too well, unfortunately. I don't think it was super well received at the time either. Yeah. Um, so I haven't read a whole lot of modern X-Men. But what I have read, I feel like the Hank McCoy we have, like post-Grant Morrison is a bit more sober and a bit more, you know, he's sort of lost a lot of that madcap side of himself that he had. <sighs> and his 80s. ethics are just gone. I think, you right. know, so even in the comic, we definitely have seen a deterioration of the Hank McCoy that we enjoyed seeing, you know, palling around with Wonder Man and the Avengers and stuff. That to me is the iconic beast who kind of is mm-hmm. always being boisterous and, you know, fantastic. Even yeah. the X Men, even the X Men fan on this show thinks that Beast is a better Avenger. I totally agree. He really agree. is, and I like him too. Whenever he pops up in like the Dark Phoenix saga, right, where he's just looking at the screen and he's like, "Oh my god, the X Men! Mm-hmm. Why do they keep causing themselves so many troubles? I'm in the Avengers now. It's chill here." Gotta go help out my friends. No, I was just <laughs> thinking that like the Kelsey Grammer version. You know, he's older. You know, whatever, farther in life. He, the fact that he's less, you know, silly and, and comedic makes sense because that's kind of where the beast is now. Um, but you do expect to go back in time and see a sillier Hank McCoy. Um, but also the interesting thing I found out about him insisting so much on the cure mm-hmm. is that all he does is wear shoes mm-hmm. and nobody knows that he's a mutant. They draw attention to that fact. Because nobody knew he was a mutant until Xavier walked in the room and outed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he's super insistent on taking this cure and being normal and passing for normal. And the girl who is blue, unless she's consciously making an effort not to be, is, you know, not really needing the cure. So it's just kind of a weird thing that, like, he's being super insistent on this mm-hmm. change. That he actually doesn't need as much. And, and you can he, tell. He, oh, sorry. He, he was super jerky to her too when he said, he "Like was. when he when she turned and he's like, see, yeah, you'll never be beautiful unless you take this serum.'" And she's just like, "Ouch!" And yeah. also, <laughs> wow, you nerd! Like, right? <laughs> How did you get that massive hand foot into your mouth? Because like, your yeah. mouth is small and that thing is big, and yet you managed to do it. I am a that female who can change that. into any shape and I inex- inexplicably like you, and you just told me I'm not beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you that are was a moron. rough. And yeah. also, to me, that was the thing. Every now and again, you see the Beast act like that in comics. Like He does have a tendency of pushing people away in his more emotional moments. But also, uh, 
Yeah, I just hate the idea of every time we see a nerd or a science person on television, they always have that, like, I'm so nervous and, oh, I'm doing all the science all the time. And, you know, all of that kind of uh, just constant nervousness. I think the cool thing about Beast was that he wasn't really like that. Yeah, but they do that because they're still trying to uh, cater to what they think is the audience of these movies, which isn't true anymore. Yeah. But, you know, back in my childhood, we were the only ones watching these movies, these these nervous white young males who didn't know how to do anything. So it's like, oh, that's me on the screen. Yeah. yeah I, I do find that pretty relatable as a, as <laughs> yeah. a nervous, nerdish male. Um, right. I, I th- I'm, for some reason, thinking of the moment in All New X-Men where Hank McCoy actually gets to express his attraction to Gene. And that lasts for all of five seconds before he totally puts his foot in his mouth again with her. Mm-hmm. I forget exactly what he says, but he totally turns her off. Oh, um, yeah. He's the worst to Gene, too, actually. I think uh, there's a strong competition amongst the O5 of who is the worst to Gene. Um, but over an extended period of time, you see why Gene never entertained that, because he just has too much of a complex about it all of the time. Plus, Gene's really into feet. Yeah, no. I've I've seen Gene make some compromises <laughs> in her taste. Yeah, she's apparently not a problem with Harry because she seems to attract a lot of Harry guys. But yeah, and I I mean feet too because there was a little brief flirtation with her in Nightcrawler, which is super weird because he had just dated Rachel, but. Uh, you, yeah, that's you were, weird. You, were, you just said that B sometimes pushes people away. I was just thinking he's the first X Men to ever quit being the X Men. That's so that, right. We just we kids. just uh, did commentary on that in yeah. issue eight. He he leaves the team. Yep. Yep. Um. Okay. So should we switch over to sad sad woman? You guys go right ahead. <sighs> Emma Frost. Or yeah. are we talking? Or are we talking about Moira Taggart? Because <laughs> I was going to make the same joke. <laughs> Moira is totally just Val Cooper in this movie. It doesn't even really make sense. It's you know. Yes, you know, she's Val Cooper in this. I never noticed this until this last viewing, so maybe that means I'm becoming more insightful in my old age. But <laughs> like, she's there to use her sex to get into, you know, and see other mutants, and that way Professor X can read her mind and know there's other mutants. She's there to facilitate the whole government hookup. At some point, she's in Russia with them, sorta, and then she's just gone. Like, there's mm-hmm. this whole training montage. I think I saw her face smile one time. And I kind of <laughs> forgot about it. I kind of forgot she was in the movie. And then, like, like a half hour or an hour goes by. And it's, the end, <laughs> and it's the end. It's the end where they're all in the helicopter, you know, the final act. And she's there again piloting. And it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot Maura McTaggart's in this movie. So, like, they really, yeah. like, kind of took Rose Byrne and just pushed her aside. Because they did, did nothing great- with her. What she did, she did pretty well with. I liked the performance, but you're right. She's a plot device. Yeah. And they just also, ignore her. Yeah, the whole time. And then I was just like, I kept interjecting in my own head because I remember watching the X-Men animated series whenever I was a kid so much. And in that, she goes, Ook, I didn't know. Uh, <laughs> and I, right. Every time anybody spoke to her, I was like, Ook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, Where but, was her Scottish Scottishness? Wow. No Scottishness. And <laughs> James McAvoy had an accent. Michael yep. Fassbender had an accent. McAvoy is Scottish with a <laughs> Scottish character that he's supposed to be having a connection with, and she's not Scottish. 
Yeah, it was bizarre to see that. And that was the whole time I just couldn't, I couldn't suspend my disbelief and think of her as anything other than Val Cooper because she's 100% Val Cooper. So Working for the yeah. CIA. Yeah, yeah, 100%. percent The science stuff is out the window with this character. Uh, you know, the only real similarities, I guess, are like the hair color. So. And yet, yeah, she, there's, was she not in Last Stand as a scientist? Is she? She, yes. she got name-checked. No, oh. it was famous at the end of the credits. She's there, and Professor X transfers his brain to that comatose body. Oh. What? Yeah, you guys didn't stay to the end credits. Rookies, rookies. Because remember in the beginning of the movie, he's talking about morally, is it good if you could consciously change, you know, put your brain into somebody else? And then the end credits, it's more McTaggart's like hospital or something. And then he wakes up and says, hey, what's up, lady? And he has Patrick Stewart's voice or something. <laughs> like that's how he survived Jean Grey killing him. Right, right. So she was in that movie as a scientist or a doctor <laughs> or something. And now she's a CIA agent, I guess multitasking very yeah. very talented our dear moira mctaggart hold on so. are you bullshitting no i'm serious <laughs> this was at the end of the of the last stand i think so isn't that when he died the last stand he died in the last stand yeah so he transferred his body to a com- his mind to a comatose patient i don't I know don't how that, that i don't at all i don't know how that changed him <laughs> physically for future movies but that's how he lived i don't remember that at all this is a, wow I don't think I've ever watched Last Stand to the end of the credits. Did I dream that? <laughs> now you're now you're making me wonder if I'm right about that. Yeah, she's there. She's played by Olivia Williams. Brief appearance, talking about ethics and mutant powers. And at the end credits, she appears attending the brain dead patient who suddenly speaks Xavier's voice. That's how it ends. Oh. Okay. <laughs> anyway. So there's another reason why this is, can't be the same timeline, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. There's no way. There's no way. This one I just didn't... flew off the rails of it. This isn't even regular 1960s. Like, none of this makes any sense. <laughs> They're like, well, look at crazy. this tiny television with JFK on it. So it must be 1962, am I right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's got to be 19... <laughs> Here's the thing is, like, I like this movie. Uh-huh. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a great X-Men film. But here we are. There's like there's just like so many things that are that are not connecting well, the way they're supposed to. I don't mind a movie being badly connected or having bad continu- continuity. That doesn't mean a movie can't be good for me. You know, yeah, sure. Like, I'm a James Bond fan. I don't care about continuity. <laughs> you just you just show up and you enjoy the two hours, and that's cool. Especially when it comes to X Men, I actually think it's funny that the X Men movies make no sense to me, just like the comics. So it's like accurate. <laughs> you True. Know, I like. I kind of like that, but. Mm-hmm. So whenever I walked out of first class, I came away with two complaints in the midst of an otherwise pretty awesome movie. And one of those was January Jones's performance as Emma Frost. And we can talk about how the Emma Frost character itself in this film is also an issue. But her performance as Emma Frost, I did not enjoy, which is crazy because as Betty Draper on Mad Men, she's an icon. Yeah. And I love her. So I don't know what went wrong with that yeah. actor in this role. I hesitate mm-hmm. to say it's bad acting because the other things I've seen her in, I like her in. So is it just that she was just getting directed wrong and they weren't fixing it or she didn't understand or it just seems so vapid almost. Like, I don't know. Like, it almost seems like she's learning the lines the day of or something. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. It's so stilted. I don't know. Sarah, what did you think about it? 
Is it? Or we're talking about Emma Frost right now, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, sweet. I missed one one crucial line <laughs> in this. Okay. Uh, I yeah, stilted. Um, just to begin with, and then of course her servitude to Shaw was very uncomfortable. Uh, they toy with that stuff in the comics, but there's always the implicit understanding that Emma Frost plays by Emma Frost's own rules. Um, her running and fetching ice for him and him calling her sweetheart is just gross. And yeah, I, I think the sixties misogyny coupled with the fetishism of Hellfire Club makes it really gross. And just like just everything. I don't see her as a fascist. I don't think that Emma Frost would be down to kick it with some Nazis. I just don't see her being that kind of person. She's a American capitalist, which is also not always great, but she definitely wouldn't be down with the Nazis, I don't think. So, and I just, have, yeah, any any time you see one of your favorite characters just kind of go in that, that direction that morally doesn't make any sense to you and is kind of arbitrary, I think that that ruined the character. Seeing her team up with these people who were just completely awful is true to the character, but it misses the point of the character, right? So that was that was the biggest problem to me. She was at, she still did didn't understand the character, but the screenwriter didn't understand the character, and neither did the director. So it was pretty rough. She's lacking power. Yeah, like, like mm-hmm. you know, if you want to disconnect her from the comic and whatever, like we do sometimes, that's fine. But I, you know, like again, going back to Mystique from the first three movies, when she's on the when she's in the room. She's a badass, right? And you want that from Emma Frost, and I just—it's just completely devoid. Like her only gone. power move was with the uh, the Russian general, where yes. she like you know makes. But like that's so that like was a, the moment that I thought that's Emma Frost. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. that was like an easy yes. idea for her to do. That's like a very basic concept power move. But you're right; the rest of her scenes, she does not exude. The fact that she is the baddest person in the room anytime she walks in the room. Yeah, she'll sacrifice anybody to do the thing that she needs to do. And that's, you know, somewhat clear here. In, in some ways, you look at her as being a very... But that's the thing. You look at her as being, like, weak, you know? She does mm-hmm. it because she doesn't... She's not that smart and she's not that cool and not that able to think outside of fascism and to me even whenever emma frost was at her worst most capitalist she is attacking the patriarchy and attacking people who have held her down and Mm -hmm. that is just completely gone and if this take was going to work that needed to be there because otherwise we just see her aligning with fascists and that is not who emma frost is you know she's the person who plays nice on their team as it suits her but we didn't see that, you know, that comeuppance or that turnaround. She, she had that weird scene. And I think the last scene she has, oh, before Magneto goes to recruit her, is she does that stupid perfect circle in the glass that's humanly impossible and pops it open and says, there's a war coming and you have to decide whose side you're going to be on or something like that. But like, was that supposed to be her betraying? Shaw or supporting Shaw or neither? I didn't really get what the point of that was because it, 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 it didn't get yeah. followed up. I think and it boils I, down to horrible acting. I'm mean, honestly just like it just oh my god, it was excruciatingly bad. I think the whole 
team really contributed to a very weak take on Emma Frost for sure. She looked great. Uh, she, you know, like the setup, her diamond power, I thought was pretty interesting. The fact that she could block Charles Xavier without any question was pretty good. You know, it mm-hmm. showed her on equal footing as a powerful telepath. So that mm. was good. But in the end, she's still only working for other people's goals. And it was somebody who is just absolutely the worst possible character that you could side with in the comic that is consistent. But as I say, there is a completely different tone to it, even in like the dark Phoenix saga or something where Emma Frost is completely amoral. We're still seeing that, that thought process behind her actions. And yeah, that's yeah. super important. In like the Dark Phoenix and early Emma Frost, when you see her, you know, in a position below Sebastian Shaw, there's a frequent undercurrent of vying for power and looking for a way to get above and not liking the fact that she is, you know, the number two player in this, or maybe even number three behind the Black Queen, uh, who's, you know, doesn't exist yet, but... um, you don't really get that in this. The only resentment you ever see her give to Sebastian Shaw is whenever she's put in the place of a 1960s woman and made to serve for no reason other than she's the woman in the room. So, of course, she's supposed to. Yeah, um, that was gross. Yeah, it's really bad. And that's the only time we see her being resentful of the fact that she's working for this guy. She mm-hmm. should be the most powerful player. And she should know she's the most powerful player. And she's only ever going to work for somebody else when it suits her purpose. I think they make it clear, too, that she is the most powerful player, which is like baffling, kind of, because she right. does exhibit the most. It's like one of those situations where we have Silver Age Jean Grey or something where you're looking at her being very confused about the fact that this is the most powerful character on the team. And yet there is no comprehension of that from the creative team. Like, <laughs> so. Until he got that helmet, she technically could have just overpowered him at any point. At any time. Yeah, yeah. It was it was whack. I did not like this about... And I was kind of laughing to myself a little bit and being like, haha, well, now that eight years have passed, I'm super mad about this. <laughs> <laughs> but also well, I know it, why people are now, you know, oh, Emma Frost deserves another chance and stuff. I yeah. was like, when did she yes. pop up? Origins? <laughs> yep. This was it. Yeah. She never made it past this. So mm-hmm. even all that recruiting at the end doesn't go anywhere. Uh, yeah. Well, let's talk Which very briefly about the end because on the one hand, Emma Frost just becomes an evil mutant and aligns herself with Magneto because of course she does. But on the other hand, Mystique, oh my God, Emma Frost at the end. Oh, she, she does Magneto walks into her room and is like, you know, oh, right, right. Now. Well, she was evil the whole time. I didn't, I didn't misunderstood you. Yes, go ahead. I'm saying like, you know, she, but like Magneto makes his band of evil mutants, very X-Men four, very like, you know, these are my brotherhood now. Mm-hmm. And she just goes off with that. And it's not really, I don't know. I feel, it felt, it felt shallow. Well, um, also, but Magneto um, looked really, really cool in that. Scene. Um, Azazel and what's his face? Riptide decide to go with him too. I guess it's just like, well, Sebastian Shaw's dead. This guy seems to be willing to kill humans, so let's follow him, I guess. But yeah. ideology, or like for their ideology, it's completely the opposite. So it doesn't make any sense that you would just be transferable. Oh, yeah. I aligned with that villain because I'm super bad. So I guess now I'll align right. with the other super bad that, villain. Which is exactly what happened on the beach. Because again, they have no lines. So he's like, anybody coming with me comes with me now. And they all just walk over to him. And it's like, well, why are you guys going? I don't know. Mm-hmm. He's not trying to 
create a Cuban Missile Crisis with anybody. So is it the same thing? I don't know. I guess yeah. bad and bad. So I guess that means we have to talk about Angel now. Yeah. Angel. 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 She 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 was oh, you mentioned people going over to the other side. Uh, I know. Do- I ha- I blocked it from my memory the second it happened. <laughs> well, who I have no idea she? who she is. She Angel was a Grant Sal- Morrison character, so she doesn't have as much history as a lot of these other characters do. And yeah. we've got to give credit where it's due. Grant Morrison definitely had a very problematic take on that character. <laughs> so it's not uh, not like she came out of nowhere, I guess, whenever it comes to problematic takes. But Well, the- I read that run once. It's been long, long time since then. So I don't really remember her comics portrayal very much. Uh-huh. Uh, but what did we think of? So she's character? the character that represents, you know, you having to choose sides. Basically, mm-hmm. She's right? the pyro. So that's. <laughs> She's the pyro of this movie. Someone has to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So that was her. And I didn't really care one way or the other because I wasn't particularly invested in her one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I kind of wasn't invested in... I mean, I like that school scene or, you know, the it wasn't a school, but the room scene where they're all kind of getting to know each other and their powers and stuff and they're being teenagers yeah. and stupid. That was really fun. But I don't know who Darwin is in the comics or in this movie or really Havoc. I guess I know who Havoc is, but... Um, Darwin, so unfortunately, like, is like this character uh, that pretty much yeah. every time he shows up, he just gets killed really fast. And it's really problematic because well, he's the only black guy pretty much that pops uh, up in these movies like too much other than, I mean, you know, he's his like status is just like, oh, I'm just going to like get killed real fast, even though my literal power is to survive anything. Okay. <laughs> so that, that was definitely a uh, negative I remember from this movie is a lot of right. crying and foul that. The black guy dies, but not only the black guy, the black guy with the power to not die dies. Yeah, yeah. And see, I didn't know him from the comic, but I do feel like the logic was missing because they did literally say he adapts to survive. So it's like, why couldn't he adapt to that? I don't know. <laughs> they said it like eight times. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just so sitting there going, times. I mean, I don't know the rules. At no point in the movie did they say, unless something attacks me on the inside. So, right. so why couldn't he adapt to that? I don't know because he's a black guy and he has to die, I guess. That's what it seemed like. Yeah. So I can I see the reason why people are crying yeah absolutely i've also felt like they treated that character really badly i think they treated him really badly in the comic too unfortunately and he was cool i liked him in this movie he was seen yeah. cool so i would have liked to have seen more than just that one room scene with him and then he dies but mm-hmm. oh well. yeah yeah oh i thought angel though um i liked the casting and i liked the look of her wings and i wish that somebody could write that character without relying on just kind of bad tropes. Agreed. Agreed. Kind of the she, same with Darwin. <laughs> they were both kind of bad tropes walking. Mm-hmm. And then also like the only thing she does after that is have a fight with Banshee in the sky. And that really didn't hold up for me. That no, that scene looks super cheese ball the whole time. So <laughs> it really does. The special effects were kind of bad on that. And what's Banshee in this movie? There's nothing yeah. there. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like a lot of these kids that they're gathering outside of the same problem as the first three movies. we got Wolverine and we know all about Wolverine, but we don't know nothing about Cyclops or anybody else. But And then this movie, it's like all the Magneto, Xavier bromance. And mm-hmm. then we don't know much about Havoc or Darwin or Banshee, Angel. Like, I, didn't <laughs> even know, I didn't even know who John was talking about when he said Angel just now. I thought you meant... Warren Worthington. That's I what like, I thought too. But I was like, was Angel in this movie? I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. I well, forgot about that We have two completely different characters named Angel, and yet there's also no legacy connection or anything else between them. It's just 
Warren wasn't in the comics at the time, so we're going to make another yeah. angel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought that the, I mean, my Banshee is always going to be the, you know, middle-aged dude <laughs> puffing out pipe. his pipe. Yeah. Uh, saying Acme Boyo and like weird stuff like that that doesn't <laughs> like reading it as a little kid and not knowing that they're trying to do an Irish accent <laughs> you have no idea like you just think that people walk around saying Acme Boyo <laughs> <laughs> um, very confusing but I like him as being that kind of because I grew up you know 90s reading Generation X you know I like him as being kind of that older mentory kind of I'm too old for this shit kind of guy. Um, uh-huh. Here he's like 20 and <laughs> just yeah. so devoid of a personality that it was kind of a bummer for sure. I liked oh. Havoc. <laughs> the flying scenes were kind of fun, like trying to get him to fly. Right. Yeah. That's where yeah. Partly because partly because it was funny to watch him fall and scream. And partly because it's like sometimes funny to see comic concepts come to life and you're just like, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> it's a I'll... weird concept, but his action stuff did look pretty good. The weird yeah. thing is that Banshee is never young. Like Ever. he starts out, <laughs> he starts out in the Silver Age as old and fugly. Yes, and I he love gets a total him. glow up whenever he starts dating Moira in the um, Claremont comics. And they're so like weirdly sexy with each other all of the time. <laughs> yeah, they're like, get a room, you two. Come on. I know. And Xavier's like, wow. (laughs) Xavier is bummed because he's like, she wasn't, she wasn't really like that when we did. (laughs) Banshee, he's got it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that guy. He's a lot of fun. I think through like that early Claremont run, I love reading those stories of Banshee. And I think he comes back in Generation X where he's expected to be kind of the mature dad. And we've seen him be a really immature dad (laughs) the whole time. So him kind of turning it around then was good. But, you know, let's be honest, that was probably about the last good Banshee story anyway. So, you know, we're taking characters where they could really just throw them out there and be, here's an Easter egg and not really have to worry about them too much, I guess. Right. Well, it's it's kind of funny. We're not going to see Banshee again, as far as Mm -hmm. I remember. We don't see Angel again. We don't see... Riptide or Azazel again, or of course Darwin. I can't remember if we see Havoc again. I think no. No. Uh, so it's so. pretty much just Beast. Oh, we don't see Frost again. So it's Beast, Mystique, Magneto, and Professor X are the only ones who are going to continue in this universe. I'm pretty sure Havoc <laughs> is in Days of Future Past. Okay, is Havoc? I wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think <laughs> the, the, uh, he's in the beginning. Um, I. I always look at Havoc as being the troubled bro, and he really was the troubled Which bro. In he this. did play troubled bro in this, didn't he? I thought that it pretty much matched up with my vision of, like, you know, Alex is a hard-to-love character, but after a long period of time, I feel like I've kind of gotten there with him. Uh, but <laughs> this movie, I saw him and just cracked up immediately where, don't get too close, you might get hurt. <laughs> that guy. I'm wearing it's funny. it's funny they went older brother with him though, because isn't he younger brother in He sure the is. Comics? He yeah. has such an inferiority complex, and that's why the troubled bro thing makes sense. Because he's so used to being the little brother of this perfect guy, Scott, who nobody <laughs> else thinks is perfect except no. for <laughs> except for Alex, who God. constantly puts himself against Scott, who is like 
pretty much at all moments of his existence just flailing, trying to was, get through. I was going to say, if you're the troubled brother of Cyclops, that's a problem. Yes, but cause... then you see he tries to turn it around and he aligns with like the Avengers and try, you know, I just think that he's always been such a confused character because the mm-hmm. X-Men didn't treat him very well. Uh, and he has that inferiority complex with Cyclops, which is, you know, I don't think you're going to end up with a life like Cyclops, no matter how hard you try. So, yeah, I think that just his weird inferiority of always trying to do his dissertation and never doing it. And then just all of his problems to me, I thought really came through on this where he. Havoc is the one who prefers to be alone. <laughs> now, as I far as I, this... as far as I know, they don't connect him to Cyclops in these movies, right? Never directly. Yeah. yeah, and I don't right. see this particular Havoc ever going for his doctorate. But if he did, I'm pretty sure he would <laughs> never get past NBD. No, I know. Or AB, ABD. I know this poor little guy. I thought that he was pretty great. I enjoyed this Havoc because he his struggle with his destructiveness I thought was fairly true to the character. Yeah, and he's the only one out of all those kids that kind of got something to do, which was nice. <laughs> and Beast is so oh, uh, Beast too, a, yeah. a weak nerd. <laughs> yeah. Havoc is calling him Bozo, and Beast is frown, sad guy, mm-hmm. whatever, Hank. Hank in the comics would just, like, just devastate Alex in conversation, so I don't know what that was about, but... He's missing his big words. He doesn't have I know, any. I know. So we've hit a lot of the of the hits. Um, <laughs> couple of random notes. Mm-hmm. Oliver Platt was in this. Yeah, what was that? His credit is "Man in Black Suit." <laughs> he they which, never really say what he is, which is a government thing, I guess, or he's head he of Division interesting, X. Interesting though. Yeah. Yeah. Was he Special Agent Fred Duncan from like five mentions in Silver Age? Oh yeah, he might have been. I don't. I mean, he could have been anything, but. It was interesting to see kind of somebody who was coming back at the X-Men with their demands, you know? I thought that that was pretty interesting. Somebody who's on their side but actually doesn't just roll over and take their shit, I thought was pretty fascinating. I wish he had a bigger role. Yeah, that would have been good. He he, What they oh, yeah. gave him to do, he did well. That, that yeah. line, best magic trick I've ever seen, that was just awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and him just being like, well, what if I say no? <laughs> And I, I like it's funny because I never really thought of this, but you're saying he didn't have a role, he didn't have a name, or we wouldn't know what he did before he becomes head of this division. So, but he was the guy sitting against the wall. So that means like, you know, he might, he's probably the most powerful guy in the room because he's the guy not talking, mm-hmm. just kind of minding his own business while everybody argues. That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Wonder what he was, um, but he's always good for whatever he's going to do. Right? When has he done anything right. bad? All yeah, I thought I thought that he probably like wrote his own lines in this because they were pretty favorable. I think that that was the agreement probably for him coming in and doing a Marvel movie or something was, I have to have three good lines. Like, give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is the highest grossing film ever produced about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say X-Men. Okay. But I have, I have a personal connection to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay. Uh, y'all ready for this? Yes. Yeah. My grandfather was a pretty high up person in the Navy and or in the Air Force, I think. He reached Naval Commander before he retired. Um, he was one of the people who actually had a launch key for the missiles during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh... So he was one of the, you know, you, you always have to go in pairs, right? 
The right. US 152 actually could have launched missiles against the Soviets at the time. Um, he was personally acquainted with John F. Kennedy, did not like the man. Um, <laughs> and he actually worked very uh, worked relatively closely with uh, a small number of presidents, I think three presidents. Huh. And uh, Kennedy was one of them. Wow. So, yeah. What? <laughs> a little bit so, of weird history for me there. That means that you actually have more association with the Cuban Missile Crisis than this movie does. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know. <laughs> Maybe. Are you saying oh. that the Cuban Crisis was not engineered by mutants out to <laughs> dominate the world? Oh, so, I mean. <laughs> so I'm reading the whole like other cast members thing because sometimes it has little nuggets I didn't notice before. Uh-huh. Apparently, Agent Stryker was in this, who's supposed to be William Stryker's father. I didn't yes. notice that. But also named William, weirdly. Yeah, um, I think that they were trying to make it be the same guy, and then they were like, wow, that wouldn't work, and then it didn't matter because nothing uh, worked. <laughs> and then, of course, I knew this, but Logan was in it. Not that we need to go into that <laughs> character development. but <laughs> That was hilarious, too. He was in it. That just means that his record is standing still as being in every X-Men movie up to this point, which is cool. Uh-huh, yep. And Stanley was, Stanley was not in it. Yes. So I guess because they shot it too far away and he couldn't make it. So that was I didn't notice that. That moment when uh, Jay Law turns into Rebecca Romaine. Oh, yeah. I, I remember being like, oh, great. <laughs> just so happy that I was about to see some Rebecca Romaine. Yeah. And it's just like and the it, smallest cameo. Yeah, she didn't even speak. And now it's just immortalized in meme form now. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was kind of disappointing, but it was kind of a cool connection too, I guess. It, it, it was it was definitely a fun nod to adult mystique, and this is young mystique. But it's part of that whole weird scene where it's like, oh, you know, come back and see me in a couple of years, or maybe just a couple of minutes. Yeah, you know what? What's really annoying about the J, the Jennifer Lawrence version of Mystique is that she gets all the fun and is going to be in the next couple of movies like this real big star and big character for these movies and i think like rebecca romaine who did a better job and was had a more interesting character didn't get to do anything well i mean yep. she did some stuff but that's it and it's over and now we all go like oh jennifer lawrence is mystique no she's not but other yeah. ladies mystique and it was more fun that's why i just whenever she popped up in bed i just was so happy to see her face you know i was uh -huh. <laughs> i've been watching mystique be not that fun for about the last hour or so yeah. just seeing rebecca romaine pop in and do her hilarious one-liner was just me being happy truly happy with this version of mystique for one moment of time <laughs> mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah no yeah. i agree it was it was not great with poor mystique yeah. Well, I'm sure it gets better, as we'll find out. <laughs> well, Rebecca Romaine is on Star Trek now, so... Right. She's number uh, one. I just saw her in Satanic Panic. I have just loved watching her career kind of turn into this genre queen situation. It's been really fun. So what else do we have on this film? Hmm. Good question. Oh, the... <laughs> Oh, the completely weird, I guess, resolution with Xavier and Magneto at the very end on the beach where Xavier loses his use of his legs, which doesn't happen via the Shadow King. It turns out it happens via Char or via Magneto this time around. I thought around. it was Lucifer. It, it's Lucifer. Oh, is that right? Good God. Yeah. You Xavier, know, that, the really that awesome, important, crucial character. That, that top five X-Men villain? <laughs> uh-huh yeah 
Yep, I I clearly remember. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that was kind of, you know, whatever. You always have to be like, well, this is how Charles Xavier lost his legs, tragically. That's kind of something that they throw in. It makes it more connected, I guess, which is interesting. You know, these guys who were friends at one point, and then he loses his legs over him in an accident. I also actually kind of like that scene, because even though Fassbender's Magneto is now, like, off the deep end and going to just be a bad guy and kill everybody, he actually has a moment of, oh, I didn't mean to do that. That was kind of cool. And he's mad at Moira for it, and Charles doesn't let him do that, be mad at her, which was nice. Uh, Uh One thing I didn't like about it was just kind of how simplified it was in the way of Magneto being now, you know, oh, now I must go into full out villainy because also Charles Xavier's protest to him killing Sebastian Shaw were kind of out of line, honestly, because he a has been killing Nazis, as we saw throughout this movie. You know, we know that that's something that he was already doing. So for Charles to say stuff like, well, after this, there will be no going back to me was really nearsighted of Charles and kind of also, you know, you're making this character be something that he's not just to begin with. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, yeah, dude, this guy like shot his mom in front of him. You can't and tortured him. You can't experimented on him. Do yeah. stuff like that. You can't, I mean, we all want to be compassionate and peaceful people, but you can't, go to somebody who has had the absolute most taken away from them by a single person and say, well, if you kill that person, then you're the one who crossed a moral line. I know that that's something that comes up in comics a lot, but to me, that's kind of the same as just drawing these arbitrary lines. Charles doesn't ever go through anything that's on that level. So to me, him, his judgment of Eric was really out of line. Also, the X Men traditionally the are not are not Batman and Superman. Like they mm-hmm. cross that they cross that line all the time. And Xavier has read uh, Eric's mind, so he understands at least on some level what he's gone through. And uh-huh. then also, just just from a practical standpoint, Shaw just like absorbed a nuclear or whatever and is able to touch someone on the forehead, and the guy flies forty feet away and stuff like that. So, really, what are you going to do uh, with him? You have mm-hmm. to pretty much kill him. There's no other option, really. So let's you, just you, put him out of his misery. You can't put Zod in a cage. You have right. to Right. Right. Yeah. And man, what a great death, too. I really like that scene a lot. I like the. I liked how they like connected it to Xavier's own head as if he could feel that coin like pushing through his brain. Cause he, cause <laughs> that was a good shot. Because he's yeah. holding Sebastian you know, frozen. That's goes, just great. That was like, all awesome. Uh, and then it stops, and then he goes, ah. Uh. Because, you know... <laughs> yeah. Kevin Bacon is great in this movie as a bad guy to really hate. So anytime, you know, you can get some real good revenge on a bad guy like that, it's pretty satisfying. And that was a great death. Mm-hmm. The cinematography in this film was actually really, really off the charts. There was a lot of really good camera work in this mm-hmm. film. Yeah, and everybody is so beautiful, you know. It was such a, you know, there's there's definitely aesthetically a lot of things going for it. But, uh, you know, kind of like with a lot of the X-Men movies, unfortunately, (laughs) we kind of end up with this kind of pancake, you know, flat version of a lot of the things that I grew up reading. So it's not always doesn't always translate super well, but I thought it was still a pretty fun movie overall. Yeah, you you have to choose when you're watching it how much, you know, what kinds of things you're going to think about and how much you're going to think about them. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you turn off parts of your brain, then movies can be more (laughs) enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I, I really like this. Um, 
It does not bear deep analysis, Mm -hmm. but it's an X-Men film. Mm -hmm. They don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I haven't seen much deep analysis from these folks. Yeah, I think overall it's a good film. Like I said before, I really like the the whole Magneto storyline the most, but even Magneto and Xavier stuff was good. Mm-hmm. I really I really like that scene where I don't know if we talked about it where he's you know initially he's okay at his powers but then Xavier helps him find that fine line between rage and I can't remember what it was like rage and uh oh you know zen or something like that which really helps him focus and he now he's able to lift satellites and stuff like that whereas before he had to be completely rage monster in order to get his powers to work Right. That was also one of the few like positive, peaceful portrayals of a Jewish life that we saw. Because mm-hmm. in Magneto's memory, it's him with the candles and his mother. Mm-hmm. And that actually made me cry. That was, yeah, that was really touching. Scene. That was Very also, it's like the only time it happens, <laughs> right? Where we see no, someone's well, life. Yeah. I mean, he does remind him again when he's trying to lift the submarine out of the water to not be a rage monster. But... Mm-hmm. They don't talk about they don't talk about his past at that point. Yeah, or anything positive connected to his Jewish heritage, which I think is why that scene, even though it was only a couple of seconds, was really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope that you know all the storytellers out there can hear us. If you're going to do Jewish backgrounds, the Holocaust is like not the only thing you have to go to. <laughs> right, kind of a big deal. Don't get me wrong, but there's other it, things. It, and if you want to include it, great. But there's so much else. It's one of the things about what's that film? Life is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Great film. Where you have like half the film about this Jewish family just being a Jewish family. It goes Holocaust at the end, but there's like so much else going on in that movie. That's it's really beautiful. It's how mm-hmm. you see how much is lost. Yeah, yeah. Because if you we <clears throat> with Magneto all of the time, we just start out and end on atrocity. That's mm-hmm. all we see. <clears throat> so why do we care? You know, like it's yeah. What did he lose? Somebody we never who see just that. lived only in atrocity his whole life, and there are certainly people, you know, children of war who do go through things like that. So it is an important commentary, but also you would think at least somewhere along the line we have to say also there's a lot of reasons to celebrate that, <laughs> you know, or at Not, least see what he lost. Yeah. Exactly. You know, like, why is he so mad? If why was, is he upset about it? Because he lost yeah. tea time with his mother. That's why. Mm-hmm. I know. That was or Hanukkah. Candle. Han- candle time, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Hanukkah stuff was really pretty. It was really mm-hmm. sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a good note to end yeah. on as we're wrapping up our discussion of the film. Is there anything else in your mind that you wanted to bring up? I think I said it. Yeah, we really uh, kind of went off on this one. So <laughs> more it's so weird. than I expected. Honestly, yeah, I co- we complained a lot about the characters, but I think overall, I do kind of enjoy this movie. Just not. Mm-hmm. It's just like just like the other four, or I guess the first three, especially. It's like there's just a lot of characters we love from the comics that are kind of disappointing on screen because they don't give them enough time or they don't do it right or something. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's kind of the theme of this X Men franchise in a way. They're not good adaptations of the source material, but they are fun films. Right. Yeah, right. That's the best way to put it, I think. Yes. All right. Um, So what's next in the franchise? Are we up for the Wolverine now? Oh, God, what is it? Um, It feels like there should be more, but I think that's the next one. Uh, Yeah, the Wolverine 2013. Because that does have a post credit scene that presages Days of Future Past. Yes. 
Does this oh. have a post credit scene? <gasps> I let the credits play and I did not see one. I forgot. Yeah, there was just that 2011 music. <laughs> nope, there wasn't one. The la- the ending is him being Magneto, so that's it. Mm-hmm. Okay, we I I, I started about earlier. We got distracted. Magneto's look at the end of the cool. spill walks mm-hmm. off the comics page, and I'm yeah. so sad that we never saw that look again. Yeah. Fastbinder is so handsome. I think that he's got that. Good you know, lord, he is. Everybody yes. just wants to like follow that guy with their I eyes. I would. I would join. <laughs> I would join the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That'd be my choice. Mm-hmm. I'm not into murder, but okay, fine. Let's do it. You know what's funny about that helmet, though, man? That was not complimentary on Kevin Bacon's nose. Let me tell you. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> it looks really, really good on Fastbender. It or sure shall did. we call him? fuchsia bender now since he's <laughs> right <laughs> and actually now i'm picturing like bender as an avatar michael is the last fuchsia bender <laughs> and he's like thinking... <laughs> okay i'm done I'm uh, magenta magenta <laughs> our arch villain magenta do you think he spray painted his own helmet or does he have that sent out or something oh they probably was... would have like a badass scene of him spray painting his helmet, yeah. but you're that he got that cool. professionally done. That would have been cool. <laughs> like like tooling the, the, the sculpt of the of the piece that goes on the top. watching a YouTube video on how to properly apply spray paint or something. That would have been <laughs> <laughs> how to gloss. How to gloss, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are we are uh, make ours Marvel. Uh, this is our seventeenth not comic special, X Men First Class. Um, there's another episode on the feed because we do that. You get these special episodes at the same time you get a regular episode. Not many podcasts do that, and somebody was very kind to thank us for that on the on Twitter recently. So um, uh, we uh, that made me feel good. So I'm just going to toot that horn for a minute. Well, we can't um, deny the comics. You can't deny the comics. That's what we're here for. Right. Sarah, Seems what are some uh, what are some articles you've written recently? Oh dear lord! Um, by the time this goes up, I definitely will have an article out about how Jennifer Tilly is the best thing that ever happened to the Child's what is that Child's Play franchise? Uh-huh. Uh, yep, <laughs> so I yep. wrote about her because her birthday's coming up, um, and I believe I'm going to be doing some pieces on She Hulk because they have that <gasps> TV series that's coming cool. up. So. I'm talking about Jennifer Walters' bad relationships. I'm talking about her good friendships, all of the best parts and the worst parts of our She-Hulk history. Now, c- correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you now have a podcast also? Or Right! I have a podcast called Bitches on Comics. You can listen to at bitchesoncomics.com and or any of the streaming platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all of those. You can subscribe uh, if you want to listen to that, that's well within your abilities. It's all over the place right now. So, or, you know, compared to what I usually think of as all over the place, which is just the one website. Uh, but yeah, so basically there's that as well. You can always follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We take a lot of uh, questions as basically a advice <laughs> column as a podcast concerning comics. So if awesome. you have comic book questions, send us some questions because we always need more. Fantastic. Yeah. We're going to send you 1964 questions. Oh, I love 1964 questions. I need more of those, too, because I think a lot of the questions so far are, how do I break into reading comics? And I love answering those questions as well. But as the deep dive nerd, I (laughs) love to read old stuff as well. So I would love to get more in depth. 
not to be misleading, but Michael pronounced it wrong. We're going to send you 1,964 questions. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what I meant. <laughs> I'm, I'm down for either. About Black Widow. <laughs> yes. Good God. Absolutely. Happy to talk about her anytime. Did she really love Hawkeye or did she not? We don't know. Ooh, I love her. Uh, I love, I was just now this week thinking about the time when she just cold shot daredevil right in the middle of the chest and i read that i think when i was about 12 years old and was blown away by this character (laughs) who just absolutely would do whatever she needed to do i thought that she was always really interesting so yeah i'll take some black widow questions anytime well i just downloaded the first episode because i knew y'all were coming but i hadn't realized you had launched yeah we just did so excellent all right and um michael i think yes they can reach us at all the usual places. Just type in Magar's Marvel at podcasty stuff and you'll find us. Yep. Send mm-hmm. us emails. We like those. Podcast at MagarsMarvel.com. All right. Well, go listen to our other episode. It talks more about comics and um, has all of our other information at the end about other stuff that we do. We're going to sign off now. So we will talk to you all again next month. Thanks for being here, Sarah. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm having a great time with these X-Men movies. And we will talk to y'all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.